If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. Why was it believed that a transfusion of lamb's blood could cure epilepsy? What kind of surgery could you get in ancient Egypt? And were medieval surgical practitioners really a help to patients or a hindrance? On today's Everything You Wanted to Know episode, Paul Craddock speaks to Emily Briffitt to unravel the long history of surgery, from its ancient roots right up to transformative recent developments, including antiseptics, antibiotics and simple lessons learned from farmers and embroiderers. Tackling listener questions and top search queries, Paul shows how procedures that we might not bat an eyelid at today revolutionised past societies. Hi Paul, it's lovely to be talking to you today. Thanks so much Emily, it's lovely to be here, it's lovely to be invited. So we're going to be talking about everything all our listeners wanted to know about the history of surgery. But just to start us off, could you tell us a little bit about you, your research? Have you got any cool projects going on at the moment? Uh, Yes, I am a cultural historian of medicine. Um, I've 
written a book about the history of transplant surgery from the 16th century to the present day. And as for cool projects, um, when I was pulling together some of the themes in that book, I was invited to watch a kidney transplant. And it was incredibly boring. I don't understand surgery. As a surgeon, I'm a historian. Uh, But later it occurred to me, actually, I was seeing uh, a musical structure emerging. So I am actually working with an ensemble called Riot Ensemble to produce a musical response to kidney transplant. And its first performance was two weeks ago. Um, But there should be more coming up. So keep your eyes and ears peeled. So now we're going to dive into this history of surgery. But I think the most important, and it's one of our top searches, is what has the word surgeon meant historically? How has the role of that changed? Well, a surgeon is basically someone who cures bodily diseases using their hands. It literally means um, hand working or some, you know, somebody who works with their hands. And on one level, that, that hasn't really changed on one level. You know, st- surgeons still cure their patients manually. But what it means to cure someone by hand has changed enormously because of technology. Uh, you know, that's advanced and attitudes have changed as well. So for the patient, it's obviously much less risky now to undergo uh, most kinds of surgery, although it's, you know, it's quite fair to say most people don't enjoy surgery. It's, you know, it's quite another thing now that we have anesthesia. Now, I want to talk a little bit about um, a surgeon in the 18th century called John Hunter, because he... Um, he was the man that historians tend to cite when they talk about taking surgery from a craft to a science. If I was going to choose one moment of development, that would be it, this sort of evolution. And I don't quite like that distinction technically, because I think science science and scientific practices can be crafts, actually. But anyway, John Hunter, he was the first surgeon to really trust his senses, um, actually, that's technically technically not true, but he's he's the most high profile uh, surgeon um, from that era. Um, and there's a, there's a letter that I wanted to to bring up um, by uh, who that was written by the philosopher David Hume. Now, David Hume he was an empiricist. He was known for sort of you know championing the the value of information you got f- through sensing things. And he one day found a lump in his abdomen, and that was in this was in 1776. And he consulted the best physicians that money could buy, or his money could buy, and all these eminent doctors examined him. And what they did is they did what doctors used to do, and that is they used to take his history, they'd ask him various questions, they'd even consult the stars, <laughs> and then they'd work out his um, treatments according to what they'd learnt at medical school, but none of them even touched him. And that's because, you know, doctoring back then, it involved book learning and it involved following the authority of the, his ancient Greek predecessors. And then when Hume consulted Hunter, 
um, who was at this point, this 1776, he was at, at this point becoming quite a famous surgeon and anatomist. And he did something different. He actually put his hand on Hume's abdomen and he felt a tumour. He didn't need those sort of ancient texts to tell him that it was a tumour. And it seems very strange to us today, but that's not the first thing a surgeon would do. But you know, most... most um, Doctors wouldn't have touched the patient and most doctors uh, didn't touch Hume. So linking to this, Erin Yazdani on Facebook has asked, why have surgeons been seen as separate professions to doctors? Where did this difference stem from? Well, from the Middle Ages, you know, medical practitioners, they organise themselves in a kind of a pyramid. So you had physicians at the top. Uh, they took the highest degrees. They knew the medical texts. They were familiar with the medical system as it had been set out by the ancients. So particularly Galen from the second century, but also Hippocrates from the fifth and, and Aristotle as well. So traditional systems of medicine were a mishmash of various ancient writings. Um, they've been translated from Greek into Arabic sometime in the 800s and from then from Arabic into Latin after being actually worked on and interpreted in the Arabic language, then into Latin from the 1140s about then. And using this elaborate and really quite confusing and sometimes contradictory system of knowledge, a physician could help you with your lifestyle, you know, your diet and your exercise, and they could recommend courses of treatment to be given by people who were, well, lower in the hierarchy. So lower in that hierarchy, below doctors, below physicians, you had surgeons. And as we've already said a moment ago, they healed with their hands. And in fact, from about the 13th century, surgeons weren't just surgeons, they were barber surgeons and performed all kinds of hands-on treatments. Um, and they were coalesced into their own uh, company of barber surgeons from about 15, well, I think it was actually in 1540 that was um, uh, it, the company was constituted. Um, so the medical systems that were the province of physicians, they pres prescribed treatments like bleeding for most ailments, actually. So you might have heard of the concept of the four humours. Um, basically, they were black bile, yellow bile, phlegm and blood. Um, and they weren't ordinarily seen, but more like... Sometimes you could see them if you were ill, but they were more like concepts. Um, and doctors thought that if you were in a state of health, they would all be balanced. If you were in a state of disease... Um, they, they they would be imbalanced. And bleeding was one of the ways to balance those humours. And in fact, that's where the barber pole comes from. The, you know, the, the, the pole with the red and white stripes that, that um, symbolises the blood and bandages wrapped around a pole that a patient would cling to uh, when they were bled. So much of the surgeon's time would be taken up with bleeding, but they could also do things like pull teeth, give enemas, uh, apply ointments, drain sores, remove tumours, uh, and amputate as well. And they could do your hair because they were barbers. <laughs> um, but surgeons, they successfully fought, I should say, they fought to be split from barbers in 1745. That was when an act of parliament split them into two separate uh, companies, the barber, barbers and the surgeons. And the surgeons set up a new hall and anatomy theatre 
at Newgate Prison so they could dissect the executed criminals. So, yeah, the apothecaries, they were on a similar level to surgeons, and below them were sort of healers and quacks and things. So that's the pyramid. It's a long way to describe the pyramid. But I should say that doctoring and surgery are very closely linked. The 13th century surgeon, French surgeon, whose name I'm going to butcher because I'm terrible with, with the French language, the 13th century French surgeon Henri de Montville, he said that it's impossible to be a good surgeon without um, having a foundation of medicine. And it's impossible to be a good physician without knowing something about surgery. But still, they tended to you know, be educated separately um, and also be considered separate professions socially and culturally. You know, the medical faculty at Paris actually forbade uh, medical graduates from performing surgery in the 14th century, I think that was. Uh, but then you also have at the other end of the spectrum, Bologna University, and they insisted that surgeons had medical training. So, yeah, they, they were very closely um linked as professions, but they were separate in some very, very important ways. All right. I would like to do a bit of a run-through history of surgery. Mm. So if we start right at the very beginning, we've got a question from Marina CRS2018 on Instagram, and she's asked, what is the earliest recorded surgical procedure? Okay, right. The earliest recorded surgical procedures were uh, well they were in they were, they were in the ancient egyptian abus papyrus which actually that's not what the egyptians would have called it um we call it that because a german egyptologist called georg abus bought it on a trip to egypt <laughs> i don't know what we should be calling it we, we probably should be calling it uh, should, should we probably should not be calling it after the man who just bought it. Uh, but anyway, this, this papyrus, it contains the earliest written descriptions of surgery, like early tooth care, bone setting, uh, treating abscesses, that kind of thing. The date for this papyrus was 1550 BC. So it also gave remedies for boldness, actually, uh, which, if you're curious, I seem to remember that involved smearing your head with fat from a hippopotamus a crocodile, a tomcat, a snake, and an ibex. That's not surgery, but I thought that was quite, quite a nice little piece of information to throw in there. Also a contender, I think, for earliest surgical procedures. The procedures mentioned in the ancient Indian text, uh, the Sushruta Samhita, and, and I want to mention this particularly because they're quite complex surgeries, some of them. There's caesarean sections or what would become uh, caesarean sections uh, there in there. Um, and transplant surgery as well, which uh, is my speciality. And that was written somewhere between 200 BC and 600 BC. But it's still a contender, I think, for the earliest recorded surgeries because everything in that text uh, was already considered traditional at the time it was written. And no look at surgery, Emily, would be complete, I don't think, without looking at ancient Mesopotamian surgery. And actually, Mesopotamia, it seems to have been a quite a strange case. Now, we were talking a minute ago, weren't we, about um, the relationship between doctoring and surgery uh, and how for most cultures and for most, uh, most of time, <laughs> uh, most of history... They seem to have been separated in some important ways. Now, Mesopotamian surgery was not 
separated very clearly from um, medicine or healing or even spiritual or magic powers. And actually, if you consider, it's not usually brought up as a historical surgical text, this, but um, if you if you consider this holistic sort of treatment of surgery, lumping it in with everything else, you could say it's the oldest surgical text. And that's a good 600 years or so earlier than the Ebers papyrus. So that's 2100 BC. So that's, I think that's the earliest known medical text at all. But I suppose there's one more thing I could say on the earliest record. And that's the last thing I want to say in response to this, really, is that if you consider bones dug up by archaeologists as recorded history, recorded surgery, then you can put the earliest recorded surgery back to 6,500 BC, which is the date that skulls have been found in France with holes drilled into their heads. So that's evidence of trepanation. And that was used, some people say, to release evil spirits. Um, but more mundanely, uh, some of us suggest it was to relieve pressure or, you know, some kind of emergency surgery to remove bits of shattered bone. I'm loving the coverage there, all the way from <laughs> Egypt, Mesopotamia, right up to France. So from these really early procedures... I think this is a question that's quite popular. It's one from George Samuel on Facebook, and he's asked, were medieval and early modern surgeons a help or a hindrance? Ah, well, George, that is a very good question. And this history is, is, of course, it's a very long one, very wide-ranging one. And I think some of the some of the questions we have coming up will definitely um answer that question and actually I, i'm not sure whether whether it is a help or a hindrance or, or in some ways it is you know early modern and medieval surgery uh, was very helpful in some ways it was less helpful uh, but it depends i think a lot on the context and on the particular uh, kinds of surgery and what you mean by helpful and um, a hindrance because some surgical procedures were seen as helpful. Actually, I will give you an example now, and that's the example of blood transfusions between animals and humans. So one of the most famous uh, blood transfusions in 1667 was between a lamb and a madman. And the idea was that you would transfuse blood, but not to replace lost blood, rather to transplant what was inside of the blood into the person. So a lamb is known for being calm, and pure and full of, you know, the, the purity of God, Christ, all of that sort of symbolism. And it was thought, or certain transfusion pioneers thought that you could transfuse the lamb's blood into a madman and make the madman automatically calmer. Uh, which you'd think would be a hindrance because it's quite dangerous to transfuse animal blood into humans. But it looked like it was helping because uh, you can take a little bit of blood that's not compatible with your body and live. And what would happen is you'd, you'd get very, very tired. You'd have a fit, a massive fever, but it would look like you were, weren't mad anymore. Uh, so it looks like it helps, but it actually hinders because that ends up wearing off and you need a top up and then you end up dying eventually <laughs> but yeah it's 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 relative what what um 
help and hindrance mean historically? But I'm sure there will be more examples coming up. Talking about developments and moving forward, we've got another question from Marina CRS 2018 on Instagram. And she has asked, what are some of the most influential scientific discoveries which have affected surgical practice? Do you have any examples, names, dates? That would be fantastic. Yes, I do, you know. Well, we've already spoken about John Hunter. Um, His greatest contribution was to give scientific credibility to surgery. And that's that's when that big shift took place uh, to make surgery, you know, more or less the way it is today. In other words, informed by um, science and experience. But that isn't a discovery. That's um, that's more when science began to dominate surgery. So actually, I, I think I think I want to nominate dentistry. So we tend to think dentistry has been around since well forever. But it hasn't. Dental care was traditionally limited to pulling teeth. Um, But in the 18th century, it became more desirable to look after your teeth and to achieve a good smile. And there are all kinds of reasons for this. People had worse teeth than ever, too, because of a combination of sugar consumption and malnutrition, which is not healthy. but they were also they also wanted to look good as the beauty industry and fashion, not to mention, you know, high street and shopping. They were blossoming and becoming big things. Beauty manuals were, were out. Poets wrote poetry warning um young girls to look after their their hair and their and their, and their teeth and to brush their teeth. And dentistry was a response actually to all these societal changes. And the first dentist um was called pierre fauchard french if you couldn't tell (laughs) Um, and what fauchard did was to apply a scientific approach to tooth care so this is before john hunter actually so this is you know why he's not technically the first to do this um so back then people all over the world they thought that toothache was down to a little worm uh, called a toothworm And when I say all over the world, I mean all over the world. So there are references to this little worm in Madagascar, in ancient Egypt, in Borneo, in Babylonia, medieval Germany and early modern France. There are little lockets, you you know, that you can you can find every now and then with um, depictions of these were from early modern France. The Cherokee, they even have a tooth worm. And all kinds of folk remedies you promise to get rid of them. So my favourite is um, that you have to kiss a donkey and that will do away with the toothworm. Um, another one is you had to uh, spit salt on a fresh grave. These are all pre-application of scientific methods to surgery. Uh, so Fauchard, anyway, he saw this worm as a problem, a major problem in tooth care, and he set out to find it. Um, but no matter how hard he tried, he couldn't. He couldn't find it, even with a microscope, even with those most advanced tools of, of the age. And he concluded that they didn't exist. And even if they did, they probably had uh, nothing to do with toothache, he thought. So the enti- his entire approach was based on observation, uh, and it led him to offer a new 
kind of tooth care business which was aimed at prevention, at promoting um, cleaning your teeth, at not eating sugar. And when that failed, he had a a menu of techniques that were very expensive then, as they are today, um, like filling teeth, fillings. He were he invented fillings, uh, filing your teeth, um, transplanting teeth, even. Uh, and also washing your mouth out with urine. He wrote about that as well. We don't tend to do that now. This set of practices were performed by a very particular kind of surgeon that he called a dentiste or a dentist. And that was, you know, that was the word that was coined in 1728. It's a far cry from what was available elsewhere and before 1728, even to kings. You know, it was pretty much limited to just pulling a troublesome tooth out of the head. Uh, so that's that's sort of my number one um, most influential scientific discovery, that the toothworm doesn't exist. On that very strange note of toothworms, when did surgeons start, first start performing <clears throat> more intricate surgery? This is a question we've had from Arthix on Instagram. I think this follows on very nicely from the last question, because if I was to choose a second influential scientific discovery, I would nominate vascular anastomosis. And that basically, it sounds complex, it basically means sewing together blood vessels. And to give you a date, that would be 1901. And it's a technique that you could, you could say is the foundation of vascular surgery. Vascular surgery is the surgery of the blood vessels and the circulatory system, that kind of thing. Um, because without sewing blood vessels together, you couldn't really perform effective trauma surgery. You know, when you've been um, stabbed or something, you couldn't really effectively treat that. Uh, you couldn't perform heart bypasses. Uh, lots of things you couldn't do without this process of sewing blood vessels together. So it's important for very obvious reasons. But it's also important because the technique, and this is surprising, I think, the technique, at least partly, comes from 19th century French embroidery. Now, surgeons are taught when they go to medical school, and um, uh, in fact, all medical students are taught, that the surgeon Alexis Carrel, a French surgeon, uh, perfected this technique um, in 1901. And technically, that's true. You know, he wrote the papers, he gave the lectures, he earned the Nobel Prize, although mm, there's some question about whether he should be the sole recipient or not. Um, but what his biographers don't tell you generally, and this is a man who is, you know, well written about, he's got lots of biographies about him in, in article form, but in book form as well. But they don't tell you that, that how he managed to come up with this technique. Uh, but there are clues. You know, first, he didn't use the usual surgical needles. He used a special lace-making needle, which, despite being in Lyon, they were made. Uh, these needles were made by a company called Kirby in Birmingham. Second, he didn't use the cat gut that other surgeons used. Instead, he used fine linen or cotton thread that he bought from a local haberdashery. And third, he had lessons from a very famous embroiderer called Marianne Leroudier. Now, she was impressive, to say the least. She um, embroidered the gold thread on the Paris Opera House curtains. She won medals. 
in the Chicago Exposition, uh, in Amsterdam as well. Her work is part of the Vatican's collection, the museum. Most of it's held in the Museum of Textiles in Lyon uh, still. So Carell's biographers usually mention that he learned to sew from a, a seamstress and he was inspired by her, um, you know, and that he was taught by her because he was the best and he couldn't learn from anybody but the best. But, you know, the history of surgery, it's full of self-styled great men. The answers to a lot of the questions that your listeners are, are asking, actually, they invite the kinds of answers that are about these surgical heroes. And they are stories worth telling, of course. But I want to I wanted to nominate anastomosis as something to talk about here because it's an influential scientific discovery and even though i think that actually probably stretches the definition of a scientific discovery it shows how something that has been imbued with a kind of masculinity like surgery actually evolved at least partly from french embroidery and that at the heart of today's surgery most important and vital and intricate surgery are actually skills that have been developed by generations of women craftspeople. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Semmelweis's colleagues didn't believe him. And I understand that towards the end of his life, he, he'd walk around the city and he'd grab hold of pregnant women, sort of saying, make sure that the person delivering your baby washes their hands. And he was actually admitted to... Uh, a Viennese mental hospital. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. While we're here, I'd like to take a bit of a tangent. We've got a few mm. questions about this that I'd really like to talk about. So they're all ones about the role of women in surgery. Tamara Suter on Instagram has asked, what has the role of women been historically with surgical practice? 
you know, women were embedded in certain medical systems in ways in ways that were very important, actually central uh, to um, to many treatments, uh, but weren't named. Elizabeth Blackwell, she was the first woman doctor to graduate in America. She graduated in 1849, the top of her class in Geneva Medical School, and she believed that nature made women better healers than men. And she went on later to found the New York Infirmary for in indigent women and and she organized nurses as well in the american civil war so in britain there was also elizabeth garrett she exploited various loopholes to get her diploma from the society of apothecaries but women have underrepresented it won't come as a surprise for you to hear um I've got some data from the US, you know, in the, in, until 1970, women made, in any one year, women made up no more than 6% of any medical school class um, in the US and Canada. By 2001, that number was 24%. And currently, it's about equal, which is nice to hear. Um, but for much of the history of surgery and of medicine in general, women have actually, they've had key roles to play outside of the narrative of the self-styled, usually self-styled, uh, great men. And, and in a lot of cases, these were also peasant women, so very poor women who, have n- who had no real um, recourse to education. Um, well, to legitimate university education. Of course, they were very well educated, very skilled. Um, and I've, in fact, I believe there's a question coming up where we'll talk a little bit about about that. Um, that I suppose that class of woman healer and their importance outside of the traditional narratives that we tell about the history of surgery. So let's explore that question now. Then, which surgical procedure do you think was the most impressive or advance for the time that it was pioneered in? I like this question, but I'm going to answer it in a kind of sideways way, (laughs) I think. Um, It seems to be getting, I think, this question seems to be getting at the idea that surgery and science go hand in hand. And that hasn't always been the case. So let me give you an example from about 500 years ago. Uh, So 500 years ago, what was that? It was a great age of exploration and discovery. And that's the period when fragments of the new world started to make their way to European shores, you know, pulled out of the holes of these great Indiamen and merchantmen of that age. So it was a time of scientific discovery, of exploration. Uh, so Andreas Vesalius, who was a, was a very famous anatomist at the time, he published his great work, his anatomy book, The Fabrica, which... Basically, it sounds like a minor thing to us today, possibly, uh, but it, it, it recorded what he actually saw um, when he was dissecting bodies. Whereas, you know, for hundreds of years, people would parrot the ancients. We talked about that briefly earlier as well. And so that started to undermine faith in traditional medical systems at the time. And that was published at the same year that Copernicus placed the sun at the centre of the solar system. So what I'm trying to say is that 500 years ago, the scientific world was vibrant. But 
but was also a kind of surgery that was part of traditional culture that had nothing to do with the scientific revolution. So empirics, they, they were a kind of practitioner that disregarded theory and disregarded book learning, and they trusted only their senses um, and what their experience could tell them, basically. And this seems like quite a normal approach to us now, in a way, you know, just trust what you can uh, see and sense, what empirically you can judge to be the case. But back in the Renaissance, it was seen by the medical authorities as quite backwards, actually. So one of my favourite characters in the history of surgery, he was an empiric called Leonardo Fioravanti. And he'd travel all over Italy and he'd look for cures uh, that worked. Um, And a lot of these people, so this is relating to the last question, actually, a lot of these people were wise women who obviously had names and identities, but they were never recorded. But Fioravanti saw value in what they were doing. And he saw that their remedies in many cases worked when, you know, the remedies um, touted by university educated doctors were a load of rubbish. (laughs) So old wise women, soldiers as well, basically peasants who lived closest to the land and knew about nature's healing potential. And that didn't always lead to the most enlightened surgery. Um, So there's a story where Fioravanti actually is performing surgery on a patient's spleen. And I think he must have picked up somewhere that urine had a (laughs) some kind of um, uh, cleansing property. Uh, And he requested his assistants and the spectators, people watching the operation, to unbutton their trousers and to relieve themselves into the patient's open abdomen. Um, skin grafting, moving swiftly on, uh, skin grafting, um, that was one of those operations he observed and he noticed that it was actually more, this is, this is one of my favourite things about Fioravanti actually, he noticed that skin grafting was actually more or less the same operations that farmers, again, looking at the land, looking at culture, at tradition, not at university science, but noticed that farmers, um, performed the same operation just on plants. And it's a direct transposition. Skin graft is a direct transposition from plants to people. And it was actually so close uh, the procedure that he called transplant surgery the agriculture of the body. And in another book that he wrote a few years later, this is sort of 1550s now, 1560s, uh, he called it the farming of men. And I'd say that this was pretty advanced surgery, especially for the time. But actually, it had nothing to do with what we might call modern science. It was a more traditional approach, uh, where science at the time was arguably less advanced. So while we're talking about transplants, this is obviously your research exactly. This is one of our top searches as well. You've spoken a little bit about the origins of transplant surgery, but can you delve into a little bit more detail? How different is transplant surgery today from its earlier roots? (laughs) It could hardly be more different, I've got to say. 
Well, yeah, I mentioned the Sashruta Samhita, the ancient Indian surgical text earlier. <clears throat> that included a transplant. It was a skin graft. And that involved moving skin uh, uh, you know, in, within the same body from the forehead to the nose, because you could lose your nose in many different ways back then, um, whether it be a sabre wound or, or, you know, a ruler could punish you. In Egypt, there was a, a, a town inhabited with people who had no noses, an entire town. Um, so basically, you just sort of move the skin from the forehead to where the nose would have been and shape it into a nose. And, you know, that's also the first plastic surgery. And they seem actually to have been quite successful because, of course, you're not going to reject skin from your own um, body. I mean, there might have been an infection risk, but um, uh, when you're not also dealing with autopsies and things, you know, the infection risk is not non-existent, but minimal. So then, after skin grafts, there are blood transfusions between animals and humans. We talked about that as well, and that would be a kind of transplant, uh, a transplant of a, an animal's soul or a personality or some kind of quality it had. Some pioneers thought you could transplant the youth of a young animal. We've already spoken about the calmness of a lamb. Uh, one surgeon even thought there was something in cat's blood that could cure epilepsy. Which actually, just a little factoid here, <laughs> in uh, in the 17th century, epilepsy was called falling sickness. And I wonder whether it's because cats fall on their feet. I wonder. I don't know. But after transfusions or personality or soul transplants, whatever, whichever way you want to look at it, uh, teeth, they were transplanted in the 18th century. So we've already talked about dentistry as well. Uh, transplanting teeth, that was part of a dentist's offer to his customers. And that's the first time body parts were put up for sale as transplants. And I, su but I suppose behind that question, actually, it's, it's actually more to do with organ transplants. So I'll, I'll have to mention Alexei Carell as well uh, and his vascular anastomosis, because um, you can't transplant an organ without sewing the sewing it in. And he actually attempted some of the earliest organ transplants as well, but every one of them failed because of some unknown biological force. So that was rejection. Of course, we, we know that now, but, we, but he didn't know that. Um, actually, he had some kind of inkling because of someone else who worked in a lab next to him, but that's, that's a sort of side story. Uh, I'd also have to mention, actually, a, scient a Russian scientist who never gets, well, rarely gets mentions, um, Vladimir Demikov. Uh, he performed the first heart transplant in dogs, and that's 1946. The first lung transplant a year later, and a year after that, he did a liver transplant. So all on dogs. Uh, in the 50s, he created um, 24 two-headed dogs by transplanting the front portion of a puppy onto onto other dogs. And all these poor animals obviously died, you know, because foreign bodies were always rejected. But the first successful human-to-human -human transplant, that involved two American twins. This is 1954, and the story basically goes that Richard Herrick, um, he came down with kidney disease when he was 22. He was a soldier uh, in the Korean War. And he ended up in hospital, first in Chicago, then in Boston, where a surgeon called Joseph Murray had this idea that his twin might be a good donor. 
It's a very unusual circumstance, you know, having a twin um, and having kidney disease. Um, but organ transplants, all the experiments until then, had all failed, really, um, some more spectacularly than others. Um, but it had recently been discovered that grafts between identical twins weren't rejected. So the team approached Richard's brother, Ronald, and after some soul-searching, he decided to donate his kidney. You know, his brother would die definitely otherwise, so it was his only sort of chance. Um, but it was quite a gesture on his part because it wasn't clear back then, um, you know, what it would be like living with only one kidney. Maybe maybe it would shorten his life, actually. But as it turned out, the operation was a complete success. Uh, Richard ended up marrying one of his nurses and having children, um, but he died within eight years um, because his kidney disease returned um, and that finished off his um, his brother's kidney. But Ronald actually went on to live until he was 79. Um I suppose one more thing to say on transplants, because I've spoken quite a bit on that, as you might expect. Um, transplants, they only really became routinely successful since effective immunosuppression. So that's drugs to suppress the immune system. And that's quite important because it shows how integrated surgery has become with other professions. And actually, transplants are they're fairly simple procedures, really. I mean, I couldn't perform one um but as surgery goes it's really it comes down to coupling up a few ducts and vessels um the drugs management and actually the rest of the infrastructure around the surgery and around looking at the patient that's where the complexity and the difficulty is uh, and that's where it it becomes quite difficult actually to distinguish between surgery and other kinds of medicine and other kinds of technology Daniel Wigmore on Twitter has asked, how have surgical tools developed in line with other technologies? We just sort of hit on, I suppose, where I'd like to go answering this question in, the, in my last answer, uh, which is about transplant surgery, because I'm not really sure, actually, where the distinction between surgical tools and other technologies starts and ends. Um, but I suppose what I actually want to talk about in response to this is laparoscopy. That's keyhole surgery, basically. And I knew one of the pioneers of keyhole surgery, and his name was John Wickham. And very few people have, have heard of him. A very quiet man. And he died just a few years ago. Uh, but he more or less um, introduced laparoscopy into general surgery, um, where surgeons had, I mean, some surgeons had they'd used various scopes and tools um, to perform very specific techniques. I know gynaecology had a, a kind of laparoscopy um, earlier in the 20th century. Uh, but John in the 1970s, he had a very collaborative style of leadership and, and he actively involved radiography. You know, so you can scan live what's happening inside of the body and use imaging technology whilst you're, you've got your scope inside of the patient. And while you're looking through a um, a lens, some lenses. Uh, but also he involved instrument manufacturers so that he could develop technology that was uh, that was appropriate and specialised for that very particular kind of, you know, keyhole surgery, putting a tiny instrument through a tiny nick in the body 
and uh, cutting away and pulling things out, all kinds of things like that. Uh, so laparoscopy, keyhole surgery developed in concert with other technologies. Now, I was interested, something about John that I quite liked, and I think this is an, it, he displayed in this way an important quality for surgery becoming more collaborative. Um, I asked him um, at the end of his life, um, how would you like to be remembered, John? And he said, oh, I don't know, maybe um, that I've saved one or two people a, a little bit of trouble. <laughs> and, oh, I just thought, oh, John. <laughs> but it was, it was a genuine response. He was that kind of, it was that kind of, he was that kind of person. Um, but also, that's one of the reasons you won't have heard of John. He didn't grandstand. He wasn't one of those Alexi Carell types of surgeons who insisted that he be the centre of attention, his work be uh, central to, you know, the way surgery uh, goes forward. He uh, foregrounded his colleagues. He foregrounded the system. And he recognised that surgery can't stand alone as a profession, really. It has to be seen um, in context with other technologies, other professions um yeah so i think i think that's what i'd like to say about surgery being developed in line with other technologies so i think one of the really important things to talk about when we're talking about the history of surgery is this question by jamie gartside one on instagram which was how dangerous and risky was surgery in the past um, extremely dangerous and risky in the past to sort of give you a very broad answer the main risk or the most important risk to talk about i think is the risk of infections of us bacteria um uh and uh, sepsis and i believe that we have a question exactly about that don't we well we do indeed we've actually got one from roberta alessandra on facebook who has asked even after the discovery of the relationship between bacteria and disease, why were some surgeons hesitant about washing their hands? Well, infection, big problem in surgery. So let's say early 19th century, a patient would be lying on a wooden table. There would be sawdust underneath to sort of soak up the spilt blood. The surgeon uh, would be wearing a gown that was caked in... Uh, various stains and encrusted maybe with other patients blood and pus and things like that and a surgeon might wash their hands but they'd wait till after the operation they wouldn't necessarily wash before so as a consequence sepsis gangrene uh, rife basically and the problem really came into focus in vienna in the 1840s um, on two Two maternity wards, basically. One of them had uh, a mortality rate of 29%, 29% um, death rate in one um, maternity ward. The other one had a death rate of 3%. The difference was that the births in the first ward were being handled by medical students. And in the second wards, one with a lower death rate were being handled by midwifery students. Uh, and they changed places as an experiment, and the deaths followed the medical students. Now, of course, those students 
what were they doing before then? They were being exposed to all kinds of bacteria because they'd come straight from autopsies <laughs> and they'd be bringing their instruments with them and they wouldn't necessarily be washing their hands before. Um, so the assistant physician, uh, Ignaz Semmelweis, uh, he ordered hand washing to be um, implemented in chlorinated water before any deliveries were attempted and that actually solved the problem quite clearly. The thing is, Semmelweis's colleagues um, didn't believe him. And I understand that towards the end of his life, he, he'd walk around the city and he'd grab hold of pregnant women and sort of saying, make sure that the person delivering your baby washes their hands. And he was actually admitted to uh, a Viennese mental hospital where... In a cruel twist, he died of the same infections that he identified. And that was in 1865. We, of course, then have Joseph Lister. Now, I've got to give a shout out to um, Lindsay Fitzharris here, who has written an extraordinary book on Joseph Lister called The, the Butchering Art. Anyway, Lister, he basically he concluded that bacteria was harmed by carbolic acid. Uh, it had... So it had antiseptic properties. And he became convinced that it could and should be used to clean wounds and keep out infection. So there's one story from 1865 of a boy called um, James Freenlees, and he'd been run over by a cart. And Lister used lint soaked in carbolic acid and in linseed oil. He used that to dress uh, the wound. And it stayed infection-free. A few months later, he applied the same treatment uh, and the wounds healed again without infection. So he developed a kind of a, um, I think Roy Porter, the historian of medicine, used to describe it as a, a kind of ritual for antisepsis. So first clotted blood, that would be removed. Um, the wound would then be bathed in carbolic, carbolic soaked lint would then be applied to the wound and covered with tin foil packed with um, wool as well. And then when a new dressing was needed, the wound was cleaned again with carbolic. So when, when Lister wrote about this ritual and his experiences uh, tackling sepsis um, for the Lancet in 1867, he was able to report that none of the patients he worked on died of sepsis. So Semmelweis and Lister... They are two very important names in how surgeons really became convinced that, as Roberta put it, washing hands was a, a very good idea. I think you've also in that answered another question we've had from Susan Pollitz on Twitter. And I think another question I've got to ask you is one we've had a a few people ask us about TW on Twitter, Secret Run on Instagram, and Jamie Gartside one on Instagram, all about anaesthetic. When did anaesthetics come about? And maybe could you give us some examples of some early types of anaesthetic? So Humphrey Davy, I'll mention him first, because he wrote about laughing gas. Um, it was it was basically a, a sort of a something for, for his parties to begin with, but he did write about its potential as an anaesthetic as early as 1799. But the first really effective anaesthetic was ether, and that was used first in 1842. In a case that isn't usually brought up because it's not well documented, but um, it was used by a surgeon called Crawford Williamson Long, 
And he removed a tumour from the neck of a patient using ether, knocking him out of ether. Uh, but he he didn't he wasn't very good at publishing his results, so he's not really credited. Uh, most people cite the first official use of ether uh, as being uh, also uh, well not too long after that, eighteen forty six, by a dentist in Boston. Um, and you apply basically you applied ether by soaking a towel in it and holding it to the patient's face until they lost consciousness. Uh, chloroform also used around that time. So that's first recorded use of that, 1847. Um, but if you administer that kind of anaesthetic incorrectly, you could all cause all kinds of problems, um, even death, actually. Um, I once knew, again, uh, like John Wickham, <laughs> I once knew a, a very elderly anesthesiologist, and he was called Stanley Feldman. And he told me that he used to, he, I, I seemed to, I can't believe he was this old, but he told me that it, when he first learned to do anesthesiology, he learned to apply ether. And so this can't have been, I mean, it was 20th century. So it, <laughs> I don't know where he learned. Um, but he told me that for a various mask, something, the Schimmelbusch mask he used to talk about. And if you, if you surprised the patient and they breathed in too deeply, they could, you know, have an overdose of it. Um, but he told me, actually, that early in his career, his patients didn't like being anaesthetized, And one or two of them actually tried to get up and punch him in the face. Clearly better received by some, I think. <laughs> you could say that. To wrap us up, can you give us your favourite historical fact about the history of surgery? One of my favourite things about surgery is that it it's, it sort of it sort of relates to a lot of things we've said already, but it's that it tends to take on board other specialisms, other professions, all the way back to the earliest surgery, which um, you know, learnt surgeons learnt from uh, farmers um, how to perform certain techniques. Uh, but we're we're sort of seeing a kind of a a return to this agricultural, horticultural way of looking at the body, which I find quite exciting. Uh, so when we think about what we can do with stem cells now, so it's technically, technically possible to print body parts. Um, there's a, there are a few companies in America and Canada who will print things like um, tracheas and you know, windpipes, um, and they will infect them with asthma and use it to sort of as a way to sort of test cures and things like that um but printing 3d printing hasn't yet reached the level of uh, resolution required to to form those you know tiny vessels the capillaries um so what is happening in the meantime is for instance with heart tissue and with skin actually is that some scientists in Harvard, at Harvard and at Worcester Polytechnic Institute, have used a particular detergent to decellularize spinach leaves. So you take away all the spinach matter and you're left with a frame that's a collagen frame, basically, so it's neutral. And you can populate that with um, human heart cells, your own heart cells, 
skin cells and that can be um, implanted directly into the body uh, to plug a hole in the heart with a spinach leaf so it's it's sort of there's a Popeye joke somewhere in there isn't there really um, and it's it's not at the stage of clinical application of course but I think it, it's what's exciting about that is well two things really one that return to you know plants and the plant and people relationship that's kind of symbolic um resonance i suppose you could say and the other exciting thing for me i think about that is that you know in the we think that having a heart transplant from a pig is advanced which it is and it's very impressive what happened earlier this year um but i think it's even more exciting to think about how a bit of a human could come from a plant and it sort of raises questions about what it means to be human when bits of an animal or bits of a plant could literally become part of your body what does it mean to have an identity when bits of you um well bits of future you are no longer in existence or belong in other people's bodies that's the most fascinating thing about transplant surgery and for medicine in general, when we break down the barriers between humans, animals and plants, what does it mean to be alive? So it, it gets, so that, the most exciting thing, in, in conclusion, <laughs> to sort of offer you a, a final point there, um, the history of surgery is very exciting for me because it enables us to ask very deep philosophical questions that we all kind of ask ourselves at one point or another. That was Paul Craddock, who's a cultural historian and the author of the book Spare Parts, A Surprising History of Transplants. I spoke to Paul about that book back in 2021. So if you'd like to hear that interview, just search for Transplant Surgery on historyextra.com or your podcast feeds to bring that up. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden. 